Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost and Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who once got so horny he had an anxiety attack. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh... I'm sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is both like an amazing uh... part of the movie, but also like just the funniest idea that like it just overwhelms somebody so bad that they just have an anxiety attack. I'll I'll be honest, the uh, the sort of Christian purity culture stuff I I grew up in. Uh, that's just a very common side effect. <laughs> I, I know it is. I know. I understand that. Uh, uh, but when you, the, when just... you tie up, when you tie up the idea of even remotely getting a little horny with eternal damnation, right? It's gonna, uh, it's gonna cause some anxiety. Doesn't doesn't play into this movie at all, but does play into the lives of myself and people around me growing up. I mean, so, so the nice thing about this is, you know, at first I questioned the choice of David Bowie as the lead, and sort of on a fundamental level, despite liking him very yeah. much. But the yeah. fact that the final outcome is him making a person so horny that they have an anxiety attack. Yeah. Totally checks out. Good casting. No notes. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, there is uh, one one of the bonus features. Uh, the producer mentions that at one point, and I don't think it was ever formally offered, but at one point they were talking about Robert Redford being in the Bowie role. <sighs> yeah. Uh, which I think even at 83 would have worked. I, uh, I think it would have been fine. It would have it would have been yeah. a, it would have been a good casting choice. I would not have had yeah. any problems with that. Uh, I mean, yes, eighty-three Robert Redford is, extre- is still extremely like yeah. a handsome man. So he's what early fifties at that. point? Oh yeah, I mean he's still doing 40s. roles where I mean, like I got to think about what he was making exactly in eighty-three, but he's still doing roles yeah. where he is like the leading man and and considered very attractive. Yeah, I mean Robert Redford's still very attractive. No, I know, I, I know <laughs> he's that. Just but a very like, attractive man. I know <laughs> that. I'm not, not arguing. That. I'm saying that like right. he's still put in those kinds of roles. I think in eighty-three. Uh, where he like was, the one of the th- key features is this man makes people horny. Oh. <laughs> like in eighty three, in eighty three, Robert was, uh, Robert Redford was only forty seven. Yeah, uh, so there he, you go. He def- Fine. Yeah. Yes, he would have been perfect too. I yeah. mean, again, I have no notes because right. David Bowie, Bowie. It, knowing knowing <laughs> the director knowing where the movie's going and me not. Yeah, is the is to the benefit of the director. He's like, look, you're gonna get it all. When, you're gonna understand completely by the time we get to the end of this. Yeah. Um. The Bowie casting was actually so early in the process uh, that before the credited screenwriter came on board, <laughs> he just... already knew already knew that Bowie was. That, in that, that is role. a very funny idea. That he's so like, started, Look, I know what's up here. There was there was a version of the script that had already existed before he came on, uh, and and one of the things he was editing for was uh, playing to Bowie's strength mm-hmm. as a non actor. With with a training as a mime, which right. you can see in the film, right. and works very well. Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. 
over there for a dollar a month, you get access to some bonus content and you help keep us going. And we kind of fall in love with you a little bit for that. that that's also true. Uh, I mean, no, no, we are very, very grateful to all of our supporters. Uh, down to that $1 mark, you get to vote on a bonus episode that we do every month. It's always a non-criterion film from a list, usually that I put together, but occasionally supporters will suggest a list and I'll go with it. And often when that happens, we try to get that supporter on the episode because it's always fun to talk to somebody about a movie that they love enough to suggest that we watch it. Yeah, nobody's ever suggested a, I hate you guys here, you should watch this list. So Right, right, right. To their credit. Yeah. Generally speaking. Uh People who have suggested a full list of movies occasionally put one on there that fits whatever whatever they're going for. But is, but, but is but the is poison still pill? A movie. Like it's good. But is the poison pill? Yeah. Uh, speaking of poison pills, the fifth option on every list, no matter who makes it, is always Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal that we watched a couple of times. Uh, that's just there as the escape valve in case I make a really terrible list. Obviously, no user submitted list. Uh, Obviously, no supporter submitted list has ever ended up with us watching. No, Kazam, and, and they're very everybody, clearly sick of it. So you yeah, know, everybody loves their own list enough to to advocate for what movie they want, uh, which is fine and good, um, as it should be. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. Uh, the one dollar mark gets you access to the bonus uh, archive as well. There's over sixty episodes over there because uh, we've been doing that for a while. We've been doing this whole podcast for 10 years. We've been doing the Patreon, I think we've had for four or five at this point. You're not allowed to uh, mention time anymore, Adam. Time. It's the new rules. Our longest Patreon supporter uh, has been supporting us since September 2017. So, uh, it's a long time. The Patreon did exist, I think, since January of that yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, it took us a while. I mean, so like, it, has, it didn't take, yeah. it took us a little while to get a few people. Like, I mean, it wasn't instantaneously, yeah. but we, but those who joined well, on have been, have yeah. been steadfast and loyal. Well, we had a couple people join in those eight months who dropped off. Yes, I, uh, I remember. We, well, we got a few years, of those, but, like, I follow, you follow type dealios, it felt like. Yes, and then, yes, that's and then when we well. didn't follow back, they sort of anyway. failed out. But yeah, so that means that means we've been doing it for six years, and our longest Patreon supporter is uh, nearly nearly six years, over five years. Uh, in fact, many many of our longtime supporters joined up in 2017 or early 2018, and we are so grateful for those yes, long term supporters as well. Uh, above that one dollar mark for folks who do want to see us finish off the Sisyphean task. Uh, I mean, honestly, finish, whatever that means, if we're going to finish the Sisyphean task, uh, the Patreon money is less concerned about uh, server fees and more about long term health care needs. Um, so uh, so we're very grateful to the folks who can afford to help us out right. a little bit more at uh, five dollars. Uh, we like to thank those folks on air. So thank you so much to Andrew Jarrett, Chris Otto, Eric Coronado and Stephen Goldmeyer, our five dollar supporters. A bit above that, we do something pretty dang special, and many of our long-term supporters are in this category. $10 and above, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently each month, and I get that printed up on a postcard and write a personalized thank you note to mail out to all our $10 and above supporters, and we also like to thank them on air. So thank you so much to Adam Speakerman, Tracy McGrath, 
Patrick Yako, Nina Bajnak, and Jason Westhaver are $10 yes. and above supporters. And as I said, many of those folks have been supporting us for five or six years at this point. And thank you so, so very much to them, yes. especially. If you want to see those postcards without signing up for that $10 mark, head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lawson Criterion there, and our store will pop up with all those past postcards minus the ones that uh, are legally actionable, apparently. <laughs> are legally, are, are, listen, I mean, ultimately, none of the art Pat has made has ever been legally actionable. However, the way copyright law functions in the U.S. right now, uh, it doesn't matter if it's actually legally right. actionable. Yes, absolutely. It just matters that someone says it could be, and <laughs> Redbubble takes it yeah, down. Yeah, they immediately run away. Uh, so thank you so much to everyone who supports our Patreon, everyone who has purchased anything from Redbubble, and thank you to you for listening. Thanks, listener. Yes, thank you. This week, we are talking about a Christmas movie. We're a little late on that. Yeah. Also, it's in the Criterion Collection. I mean, we're so not as late be. as we, we... I mean, like, this has happened before, and it's we happened have. in, like, July. So, I mean, this right, is right. We better have. than normal. Yes. Criterion's... Criterion's uh, uh, holiday-related releases are so few and far between. Uh, and, I mean, there, there's a possibility that this was a December release or a December announcement, Yeah, at least, been. when Criterion actually got the rights to it and said they're going to put it out. But the chances of us actually watching it uh, <laughs> around Christmas, this is probably the closest we'll ever get. And, what, this posts the second week of February, I think? So... Uh, it's not that close. No. Uh, unless unless uh unless we pretend that Christmas is Valentine's Day. Uh, uh I mean like <laughs> I mean for you and me obviously the the timing yeah. on this is different than than for right, them right. and so you know that's that's always it's a little a closer. Thing. Yeah. It's a little closer but we're still a month out from Christmas as we it's, record it's this. It's my so. Christmas, Adam, <laughs> yeah. which is a month long. I see. I see you do you do that full 12 days times four yes yeah uh, i mean i i run the full i i run i you know i really enjoy christmas uh i consider i consider santa a kindred spirit Mm -hmm. uh and so i i like to extend it out as far as possible i i do have an aunt that at least when i was a child uh had a weird i presume a weird evangelical thing that i just wasn't familiar with in any other field of the image evangelicism i was associated with uh, but they would uh, leave their Christmas tree up until Easter. Okay. They would take the they would take the decorations off, but they would leave the tree. And I think it probably started with them just uh, because no one wanted to take the tree down. Right. But they would leave it up till Easter, uh, taking care of it, making sure it was watered, and generally, just in the water, uh, the pine trees did last. That's impressive, uh, seems, frankly, because the, super when, when we had like real trees, my family just they yeah. were they were in rough yeah. shape within like by the time uh, Christmas showed up, they were in pretty rough shape. Yeah, but they would they would keep it until Easter, and then Easter weekend they would uh, cut off all the limbs and turn the trunk of the tree into a cross uh, as, wow. as an Easter decoration. Wow! So they didn't they uh, didn't practice Festivus with it with it. That's no, 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 no. No, uh, I uh, again, uh, I have not experienced that in any anyone else. 
So don't that, know where that's that came pretty from, novel. I'm wondering if they basically invented it. I, I wonder if they, they say it was a whole a whole <laughs> cloth creation for them. Again, I think the first year you realize, oh, it's Easter weekend. I still haven't taken the Christmas tree down. I don't know you that I could do that. Immediately start turning on ways to yeah, well, maybe to, like get, to, get, to, to pivot this into a good thing instead yeah. of a, a nightmare. Even, even you get halfway through Lent and you think. Or maybe even to Good Friday, or not Good Friday, to Ash Wednesday, uh, and think, yeah, it's been long enough, but if I leave it up for another four weeks, I could justify it as if this was the plan all along. Right, right. Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, this movie, I guess, takes place at Christmas. Christmas happens such in the background as this. We get verbal reference to Christmas, and obviously the title, um, but it also... The way the references to Christmas happen in this movie, they could just as well be non sequiturs. Well, that's the thing, right? Is it? Yeah. yeah, like they. I mean, they. I, you can't ever really necessarily tell from yeah. the context, right? Like I, we know it is, but at the same time, you get yeah. to be in the first. Time. The first instance, we do have one other uh, reference to Christmas. They, he justifies the singing. At De Young's funeral, right, as being them practicing for Christmas, but he's practi- he's justifying that to uh, Hara. So, I mean, it also could have been could have been him trying. I mean, to, it could also just play. be bullshit, right? It could just be yeah, like, right. oh, like that sort of gallows humor sort of deal where you're just right, like, right. Uh, we're just going to pretend like it's Christmas, like, right, right, fuck off, absolutely. basically, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, Merry Christmas, Mister Lawrence from nineteen. 19- 83 uh in japanese merry christmas on the battlefield yes uh and in europe just called furio uh which i'm probably saying wrong yeah well that's a that's a weird one that one strikes me as odd just because like i don't understand why you would adopt a different japanese title yeah i don't know like that's a very odd choice i don't a hundred percent get um, I don't like it, and I'm glad. I'm glad this movie does not come to us under that title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, they like in this situation, they both they they both work uh, as titles, I guess. Uh, I mean, our, our you know the one we got, "Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence," and and then sort of uh, like "Battlefield Christmas." It, it they both work. Um, I kind of like the English title better. Yeah, because I feel like it's more um, ingrained with the with the movie in many ways. Uh, I guess from a classic sort of like, oh, it's a Bond movie, so they said the title of the movie in it, uh, right, sort right, of right. the deal. But um, yeah, 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 and even a little more Bond movie in that uh, the title of the movie is the last line, and we freeze frame on the guy <laughs> right, who said yes, it. Yes, yes, yeah. It's very good. This is directed by Nagisa Oshima. We've seen two films from Oshima before, uh, both of them very different to this. Yes. Uh, uh, Not too long ago, within the last probably about a year and a half, I think, uh, we watched In the Realm of the Senses and Empire. Was it only only that long? I thought it felt like it was longer ago. They were uh, closer to two years. They were about... uh, they were 466 and 470 67 in the realm of the senses and empire of passion uh, from 1976 and 1978. And this is what, 535 or thereabouts? Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah, about, what's that put it? About 70 spines ago. So, yeah, within about a year and a half. Yeah. Um, this is, yeah, this is 535. I was right. <laughs> 
I always, I'm always surprised to be right when I just guess. So <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, it stars uh, a good chunk of people who were not actors. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, our two leads, um, our titular role, Tom Conti, was an actor. Yes. Um, but our two leads, David Bowie and Ryuichi Sakamoto, uh, are basically, I mean, Bowie at the time, one of the biggest rock stars in the world. Sakamoto, the biggest a, a music very, star. A very, very big deal in Japan. <laughs> like a very, very big, big deal, deal in Japan. Japan. Yeah. Um, and then the other major supporting role, Hara, is uh, Takeshi Kitano, uh, known at the time as Beat Takeshi, credited in the movie as just Takeshi, I believe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't uh, pay attention to the, to the credits. Yeah. I mean, like... That's a very it's a very young beat Takeshi. Like I've I've spent most of my time knowing him because like he's on well he used to be on TV all the time here too and, yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, you get familiar with the sort of the older version of him. Well, um, he was a famous famous yeah. comedian at the time, yes. but also a a different version of him too because he had a uh he had a face face altering motorcycle accident. Yes, yeah. After this movie in the late eighties, yeah, I mean, and uh, you, and you see works with him in in them, you know, where he looks, you know, like this before before the accident, but like, right. uh, you know, yeah, I see him, I've seen him so many times in my life that like when you see him, you're like, oh wow, like you know, it's hard to explain, but you're like, it's kind of a fun, like exciting, like wow, like there he is. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how to explain it. It's it's one of those things where you like you, you kind of like he ne- you never expect to see him. <laughs> like and then yeah. he's just there and you're like, "Oh, wow." Yeah, he's been he's Welcome. been in a lot of stuff. Yes. Uh he he was he became a director yes. after this movie in his own right. Um directed a lot of stuff through the 90s and 2000s. Uh acted in a lot of stuff, but nothing nothing else in the Criterion collection, I believe. Um It's just kind of surprising. Well, me. we will we will reach the point where Johnny Mnemonic is in the Criterion Collection. I mean, um, I'm kind of surprised it's not already, but yeah. No, I think I think there is actually a possibility we reach the point where Battle Royale ends up in the Criterion I Collection. I honestly think Battle Royale probably should already be in the Criterion Collection. That yeah. sort of seems like an oversight, all, all things yeah. considered. Yeah. Um, how much of a big deal that movie was. He is also the uh, titular character in mind behind Takeshi's Castle. Uh, better known in the U.S. as uh, MXT or or uh, oh most extreme elimination challenge, <laughs> the uh, which which is a a comedy dub of an already comedic show that uh, I the, the 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 American version never resonated with me like it's just yeah. like never been a thing that I like but I've encountered the Japanese version occasionally here and it I don't know. Something about like I don't know the, the American version just always made me a little uncomfortable. I don't know if that was fair or not, but every time I came on, I was like, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm going to leave now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I feel like I ended up watching a lot of it just sort of in the background. Right. On, yeah. Well, because what yeah. channel was it on? It was on um, Comedy like, Central, or was it? Where was it? I I, I encountered on Comedy it Central a lot. for a little bit. I think it was on TBS for a yeah, little bit. Yeah, I encountered maybe. I can't it. Even remember often. I just never it never yeah. really resonated with me in a way that made me want to watch it. We went through an interesting series of events in my house because I had been watching this by myself for the full first half. Right. Yeah. Nobody was around. I was just watching it, and then 
the you know the kids weren't really that interested. They had other things going on uh, today. But then I was watching it, and Rumi came into the room, and she's like, "Oh man, I know that song. Wait, it's Beat Takeshi. What the hell are you yeah. watching?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm watching you know Senjo no Merry Christmas." And she's like, "Oh shit, that's that's a famous movie." And then she sat yeah. down and watched the second half of the movie with me. There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is a famous movie. Um, Sakamoto uh, was so David Bowie, as I said in the intro, was signed uh, was attached to this movie very early on. Uh, so one day, Sakamoto, who is already a famous musical artist with Yellow Magic Orchestra, uh. He gets a phone call from Oshima. And he says, I'm thinking, is he going to ask me to be in the movie too? Uh, but Oshima just says, I want to meet with you and doesn't tell him why. So uh, so Oshima comes to his office, comes to see Sakamoto, and offers him the role in the movie. And Sakamoto, who had never never done a film score before says I'll do it if you let me compose the film score as well just on a whim okay uh and Oshima says okay well I mean I kind of feel like so, you yeah of course yeah. you should say okay <laughs> yeah right so so Sakamoto uh if you're not familiar with Yellow Magic Orchestra it's I suppose the easiest way to describe it would be techno pop, um, but uh, but even that doesn't really do it justice because it's techno pop in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, at a time where all of that is experimental, right? right? Uh, uh, in fact, he talks about composing for this movie was basically the first thing he ever used a sampler for. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, the bell noises in the theme. Okay. He didn't want to use Western bells, and he didn't necessarily want to use Eastern bells, but he had an instrument in mind that was that was more Asiatic, that he wanted he wanted that sort of tone, but he didn't know how to play it well enough to okay. use it. So he sampled a spoon hitting a wine glass. Did, did he I have to ask a question though, did, like, and I don't know that you know the answer. Did yeah. he basically invent that sound that like gets used a lot after this? Maybe because you know I what I'm know talking about, right? When you hear that yeah. sound kick off in the theme, right? That specifically that yeah. bell noise. I feel like I've heard so many like vague, vaguely Eastern stylized, like you know, well, musical things with that that specific sound in them. He is he is even within that sound referencing the the instrument he wanted right, to Right, I understand I can't remember that, the but, name but, of it. But in this one at least it has an extremely synthy feel to it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz of everything he does to it it comes off very I don't know, it doesn't sound like the actual instrument that much. I mean it does, but I don't know how to describe it. It's it it sounds like what you expect to hear in something that's doing like sort of synth or pop like synth pop kind of thing with a sort of trying to pick up a sort of eastern flavor to it kind of thing i don't know how to describe what i'm saying but like yeah it doesn't really sound like the real instrument that much 
yeah i think the i think it's the Baizong, i think is the name of it um is what he was talking about and it's not um i could be wrong uh but i feel like it's more associated with the mainland chinese and southeast asian music than than necessarily japanese it is not generally a japanese sound no. yeah like it, it um, yes it's just not yeah and another thing he was going for in doing this um was he wanted to produce a soundtrack here that there's a really great bonus feature with him that i'm drawing all of this from uh he wanted to do a soundtrack to this movie that would feel I don't think he uses the word exotic in this context. He does use the word exotic in some other contexts, but 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 something that would feel exotic to both uh, both British and Japanese people watching this movie, right? Um, that wasn't that wasn't purely Japanese. Wasn't purely British. Uh, and he tells the story uh, with your wife recognizing it. The theme to this became very popular, yes, just as a pop hit. It is extremely famous. Yeah. Um. And that was true internationally. And he talks about, uh, I mean, he's very he's very coy in saying he, you know, like like most people who have a very famous song that's a little outside the wheelhouse of what they normally do. Right. <laughs> he doesn't like playing it. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. But but describes eventually coming to terms <laughs> with with it as as his most lasting popular work. <laughs> Which I don't even think is true of him, but but might be true internationally at least. Yeah, probably international. Um, I would imagine yeah. that's true internationally. But he does describe uh, a sense of weirdness he felt in hearing uh, British church bells playing <laughs> this song. Oh right? wow! Okay, <laughs> at one point. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, he did the he did the soundtrack and is most mostly electronic. Uh, I was not expecting that. Like, I knew he had done the soundtrack coming in, but I, I didn't know what to expect it to be like. Like, I knew... I know what Yellow Magic Orchestra sounds like. Right. Uh, right. But but I didn't, I didn't know that that's... You know, that he would also be producing electronic music for this, you know? Just because someone gets hired to do a soundtrack uh, doesn't mean they're going to produce it in the style they are normally known to do. It's not... Right. Well, we've we've do. seen the opposite happen, yeah. right? Like this right, is right. like what I will say is that it works. I mean, obviously, like super famous song, super yeah. famous soundtrack. The soundtrack is for this is very very famous. Like the whole soundtrack, but like, um, yeah, like it's interesting because in this instance, it works very well because it sort of heightens the surrealness of what we're going through, right? Like, right. Because right. there's a lot of things, despite the the movie being like it doesn't necessarily have anything that is sort of out of time or anything like that you know what i mean like yeah the the movie isn't like one of those kind of historical fictions where they start blending in anachronisms or something like that but the movie has a weird sort of timeless surreal feeling to it and the the, yes. the music heightens that right and 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 does a really good job of heightening that because it, it just makes you feel like you're not necessarily in the real world 100%. You're kind of in yeah. a dream or a daze. Um, it's extremely successful. Just yeah, yeah, knock it and, out of the park, right? 
yeah. There's uh, this song became famous for good reason. Yes, absolutely. Right? Well, yeah. and, and 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 yeah, absolutely. I mean, the song's amazing in and of itself, but like also just like in combination with the movie, it works extremely well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just the you know, and we get it. We first hear it with, uh, with Lawrence himself walking across the field to to go see the commotion with, uh, with the young the the Dutch soldier and and, uh, and the the guard who had been taking care of him, uh, both euphemistically and <laughs> right, yeah, and actually, um, uh, yeah. Um, and it's just, it works very well. Uh, and just, I don't know for, I was, I was worried because both empires of passion and realm of the senses are long movies and longer yes. than this, I believe, yes, if I remember correctly sure. by, by at least a half hour. Uh, and I don't like, <laughs> I don't like a war movie in general. Either, right, even even an anti-war movie based in, in you know a, a war movie that's functioning as an anti-war movie, um. But I wasn't super looking as much as I loved *Trump of the Senses* and as much as I loved *Empire of Fashion*. I wasn't super looking forward to a three-hour war movie, no matter who directed it. Yeah, I mean, I get that. Uh, fortunately, like, I, I fortunately, it's only two hours. Right, I understand where you're coming <laughs> but, from. I, you know, yeah. my my, I I generally agree with you. I counter that with things like fire, you know, fires on the plane, and and right, we've seen right, some. Right, right, right. I agree. Ninety nine percent of the time, I yeah. do not want to watch a war movie. Um, right, and even the most anti war war movie is not fully anti war. But we've had yeah. some real bangers from from, from Japanese have. directors in terms of we like have. really honing in on like getting about as close to an anti war film as you can get with a with a film with war right. in it. Right, and this. This is, uh, I think the the Criterion essay describes this as Lawrence of Arabia meets Bridge Over the River Kwai, um, but I think it's not an ad. It's really weird to me. I said that is the, just such a not apt description to me. I don't know. The essay is uh, the essay is written by Chuck Stevens, and it's it gets kind of jokey at times. Uh, in weird ways, so I don't know. I don't know how not jokey that description is, right? Um, uh, and I think if I'm if I'm going to compare this to Lawrence of Arabia, uh, I think it's probably a tongue in cheek reference to a implied anal rape scene in Lawrence of Arabia, right? Which dumb. Yeah, I mean, bad joke, right? Like, but I think more accurately, uh, I think it's the producer in one of the. Uh, it might be Conti, uh, the actor who plays Lawrence in one of the bonus features, uh, brings up Renoir, Rules of the Game. Uh, okay. Particularly yeah. p- particularly around uh, the idea of everyone has their reasons and, and Hara's uh, excuse, but not an excuse, just the reason he gives for having done what he did is, I don't understand why, you know, in the final scene of the movie, Hara says, I don't, I don't understand why I'm being put to death for doing the thing that everyone did, right? Right. Um, as Hara very much believes that he is just, you know, it's not just a, a just following orders thing for him. It's he believes he's acting in the right when he does what he did. Uh, even more than rules of the game, I think this 
you know, as another prisoner of war movie, he was, he was pretty close to our very first criterion film. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Grand illusion, you know, with, with the time period that takes place in, and, and some subtle references within it, uh, uh, in the realm of the census is not exactly not a war movie either. <laughs> so, well, no, I mean it, it 100% isn't. I mean at 100 yeah. it, like you you're yeah. you're your your grammar right. messed me up. <laughs> we, yes, it 100% triple negative is. Of that. Yes, yeah. it is 100% a, war, a it is it is tangential to it, but it is in many ways addressing it in a very yeah. specific way, right? It is it is it is a movie commenting on the the direct sort of like the way that somebody directly a group of uh, two people can directly sort of like spit in the eye of the entire thing so the the bonus features on on the criterion disc are phenomenal and unfortunately pat didn't get to watch any of them because i I mistakenly i mistakenly told him it wasn't on the criterion channel before i double checked (laughs) and so i didn't Uh, even look at the criterion channel i just rented it (laughs) Yeah. Then forgot to update him when I found out that it was on the Criterion Channel. Next time I should check on my uh, own. I've, this is this is this is a this is a everybody a, everybody made a mistake here. I had a very busy week and I apologize. They really are great. A lot of a lot of really great stuff from the producer from from uh, from uh, Conti from uh, Sakamoto and then some older stuff that includes commentary directly from Oshima and and Bowie uh, from from the film's release. They're all just so very good. <laughs> Oh, they also talk to the screenwriter. The screenwriter of this, the the British screenwriter of this, is Paul Mayersberg. And he was an associate of producer Jeremy Thomas. So when they came to Mayersberg, they already had one, one iteration of the script that Oshima himself had, had wor- worked on, had already adapted the work, right? Uh, so Myersberg, uh, he says this was a lesson he had already learned, uh, <laughs> but he didn't go back. He wasn't familiar with the novel this is based off of and did not go back to the novel. Okay. Uh, because he didn't want to be tempted to try to put things from the novel back into his version of the script that Oshima had already made the decision to cut out. Of. Right. That makes sense. I, I get where right. that's, that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially uh, kind but, of looking at the history of the novel, yeah, it's probably best that the the screenplay in itself is somewhat divorced from the novel, just in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the 1983 bonus features, everyone's sort of coyly talking about this movie. No one, no one really talks about the uh, the homosexual subtext of this movie. Outright, right. Okay. Right? Uh, whereas. Myersberg explicitly says the version of the script he had that was even more subtext and one of the scenes he wrote to be added to the script was where uh, Lawrence and Hara have that conversation about whether or not all British soldiers are queer yeah uh, in order to implant in the viewer's mind the idea of gayness uh, to to try to dredge up the subtext for the rest of the movie in a more overt way. That, that, uh, that's an interesting play. That I, I yeah. that is I I didn't think about that when watching, but it makes sense that you can kind of like you can do that, right? right? You can sort of plant the suggestion at the early on in the movie and like help guide your audience to like yeah, like give you a general because, idea of what's going on. 
with with the Renoir illusions that we've already talked about, uh, there is obviously a very easy read of this movie as sort of a whole brotherhood of man thing, right? Right. Which uh, is which is notably the sort of description you get on a lot of services that right. aren't willing to engage with the movie on a more deeper level, right. describing right. it as a movie like about trying to unite the the all of humanity or something. And like, I don't right. remember exactly what the description was like. Wow. And, that's, and then I got to the end and I was like, that's not really the movie I watched, but okay. Yeah. It's not, it's not, not that in the end. <laughs> right. I don't but think. Like, no, but, but like I, I, I give Oshima a little bit more credit for being a little bit more like, yeah, a little bit more creative than just going for the basically right. sort of like flat yeah. humanist sort of like, and it, and it is not, yeah, the flat humanism of Renoir. <laughs> well, yeah. and notably, I think he <laughs> criticizes yeah. Kurosawa for. Uh, oh yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes. So, um, uh, but this isn't. By no means is this a gay love story, right? No, no. Uh, the uh, the homosexuality in this film is is sometimes caring. Uh, is sometimes manipulative <laughs> or manipulated, right? Because right? uh, I think I think there's bits, particularly with De Young, the the Dutch soldier, in how he describes what happened with his guard. Uh, that suggest. I think you can read it a couple of different ways. One reading I agree. that seems that seems pretty common is that this guy was taking care of him and in taking care of him uh, crossed a line that De Young didn't know how to respond to and therefore didn't stop. Right. Um, but the way De Young describes taking care of me for three days and then sort of trails off, I think there's actually another way to read that of uh, you know, a very common World War II <laughs> trope is... Uh, an injured, an injured person falling in love with their nurse. I, I, uh, I, I choose. I, I chose the second. Personally, internally, chose the second reading, yeah. and then the sort yeah. of pivot to to making it, to calling it rape, comes more down to like the young being sort of trapped in a bind of like, oh, I can't. Right, right, right. Like there's there's limits to what my and, comrades and my captors will accept from me right. as a person. Where like if I say this thing. If I admit to what was actually right. going on, I'm dead meat. That, like it's over. That that scene with Lawrence and Hara, where where they talk about British soldiers, uh, that is Lawrence bringing De Young to Hara for protection, and talking particularly about De Young, right? Exactly, and yeah. whether or not he might be gay. And in that moment, De Young certainly should be, would be, and should be denying it, right? Right. Uh, and I think I think that latter explanation better uh you know obviously there is a it is within the realm of a trauma response yes but i think that better uh better defines why day young bites through his tongue and chokes himself on it right in watching this man be forced to commit yeah i I, I agree again i think there is there is open interpretation and i i'm willing to to accept other opinions there uh but but that is the read i had on it and i think is that's one i had too and you yeah. and i arrived at that read independently so right 
I think right. it, it may not. There's no correct read, but that is, I think, a yeah. very, very valid one. Right. Yeah. Now, now the other relationship uh, in the movie, uh, Yanoi's crush on Sellers. Right. Uh, is one sided until Sellers uses it to as a, as a uh, as a weapon, basically as like, a weapon. Yeah. Like it is. It is. Um. Yeah. It's a deep fascination, right? It, it's a. It, yeah. it is a fascinating. It is fascinating in a lot of ways because it's talking a lot about power dynamics and stuff, right? Like, you know, it has all the power uh, yes. in this relation, it, like in the in a relationship that doesn't really exist as a relationship, right? Like, it's not it's it's purely um, like captor and and, and captive, right? Right. right. Um, but then, like, you know, we see that uh, Sellers is is able to use it as a weapon against him uh, at the end. Yeah, but ultimately gets him killed, right? Like also ultimately results in his death as well. Yeah, but saves the guy he was trying to use right. it to save. Uh, sacrifices his own life uh, in in a way, you know that. Obviously, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't agree with Sellier's continued guilt over what he did with his brother. But Sellier's does have that guilt. Right. Has been recently reminded he, of that. He guilt feels himself feels, to be a traitor and a, yeah, a betrayer right. of his family, right. of his of his brother. So, so believes that if someone needs to die, it should be him because he deserves it. Um, does that in a way where uh, uh, it also removes Zinoy's power completely, right? Um, and in fact, removes him from power in the end of that, uh, which the new commandant we're introduced for <laughs> to will be worse. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, yes, uh, yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, um, yeah. So that is that is used for power, but uh, but Yanoi's love of him is obviously a crush, <laughs> right? right yes. It's yeah. it's not it's not played for anything other than that, and it'd be very. I mean, I, it's I, it's I, it is played for it is specifically deeper than a crush, right? It is it right, is a right. deep like obsession more than right, right. It, by the time we get to right. the end of but it. But it's not um, yeah, but it's not just an obsession. It is it is an obsession that starts with physical attraction. Right. It is not just uh an obsession, an ideological obsession, a a this is my enemy whatever sort of thing. It is an obsession that started with a physical attraction <laughs> at first sight. Um uh you know, the way he reacts to the shirt coming off. It's not just a matter of court right. uh, uh, process. He uh, he sees David Bowie without a shirt and falls in love with him. Right, uh, and 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 to that end, as we said in the introduction, casting David Bowie in the role is the right thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely, it works very well. Redford would have worked. Redford would have worked. Yes. But Bowie works really well too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you know it's. It's a fascinating movie to that end. Obviously, the Oshima we've watched was much more overtly sexual, right? And yes, much more yeah. overtly violent, right? This is a movie that both the screenwriter and Conti uh, described as reading the script and almost walking away because it was too violent. Uh, hmm. But it's not, it's not, that violence is not portrayed. Uh, on screen in in overtly violent manners. So obviously, we see uh, a couple instances of seppuku uh, that that get bloody, and we see the first we see the stomach knife go in at right. least a couple of times. Um, and you know, we sing the swings at 
one guy's neck at least a couple of times too uh even even as the actual connection is off screen so you know i could see the way the way that would be written wouldn't necessarily have the framing of the, right of although the i shot, i gotta say know. like you know i mean all in all it, it is a relative it's it's mild by the standards by which i've become accustomed to in my life at this point right, you know what right, i mean right, like, right right yes um and you know positively chased compared to oshima's uh, other work right i um, mean and of course like they're, they're, oshima's work is is very i don't know how to describe it it is um not i don't want to say single-minded but it's it's he's very effective in using that sort of thing to accomplish the ends that he has in mind and something like uh you know realm of the senses has a very different goal in mind and uses all that stuff very effectively uh you know in that situation it's mostly sort of intense sexuality uh in you know it, it but like violence as well he's got a good eye for sort of i i don't know like I don't know how to describe it like, you know, you know, Empire of Passion is like the same sort of way, right? Like it it I'm trying to figure out how to describe what I mean, but like it's very it's used to good effect, right? To accomplish the goals in mind. And this movie doesn't require the same kinds of things that the other movies required in terms of that. Like and, and that would only muddy the water really for what, what he's trying to accomplish here, right? Right, right. This is a very this is all in all despite it being about um, in many ways about one man's obsession with another is a is a very is very chaste right it's meant yeah. to be very like they can't there's never going to be anything there like it's, it just won't oddly enough there was a scripted and shot heterosexual love scene in this movie there uh are, there are no there are no the, women in this movie the flashback story that conti tells about meeting the woman uh, after the fall. Uh, he's in Singapore. Uh, and he tells that story when he and Lawrence are together uh, in the brig the second time, or in the, in right. the jail the second time. Where where Sellier's story is actually shown in flashback. Right. It kind of, uh, yeah, um, Lawrence's is yeah. not. Lawrence's is not. Well, it was shot so that it could be shown in flashback. So his story about meeting this woman and having to leave and that she he comes back and she's still there uh, involved a sex scene that was shot. And Conti describes uh, the awkwardness of, of shooting it, knowing knowing Oshima's other work and, and it being a love scene on film with an actress he met in makeup that morning. Uh, and he comes on, he says he came, he came on to set and Oshima didn't generally with the Western actors, particularly Oshima was very open to just letting them do their own thing in their own style. Right. Uh, so he was left with very little direction for the sex scene. Uh, and, and Oshima's uh, essentially just told him to perform in the sex scene. However, he felt appropriate. Right. Presumably, uh, uh, Oshima did not insist in that situation <laughs> on actual real penetration, right? As, right, right. as in *Rumble yes. of the Senses*, uh, I, yes. one has to assume. One has to assume. Conti does not mention that. It feels like something it, he would mention. Yes, if yes. that were the case. Uh, 
Yes. And and of course that scene is ultimately cut. Right. Um for reasons no one is clear. But also on. just but, for, for the better, frankly. Yeah, like the movie doesn't yeah. need it. It it it's right. it's frankly probably probably I think Ocean Man, probably everybody else knows it's probably just too horny for this movie. Like a movie that well, what I mean is like it's no, I think this right. movie is all in all very chaste. When it's all when it yeah. all comes down to it, one man's obsession with another man, but like there is there's nothing actually there, right? There's no right. Ro- there's no romance, there's no there's no like explicitly expressed sexuality there. It's it's yeah. very because it's worth noting that Yonoi is also not able to deal with his feelings in this in this regard i like right very specifically can't handle what he's going through yes and while sellers uses it as a weapon it's clear that yanoi is unraveling because of yeah. this anyway and it's clear that yanoi's men understand that he is unraveling yes like absolutely his, for particularly his batman who who tries to kill sellers uh in order to keep this from happening right yes right? uh yeah. So yeah, it would have I think I think I could understand during the process of writing this how you would end up making that a scene. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I I totally get it. You you write it and then like everybody clearly everybody made the right choice here. Right, right. Cutting it, it for the cutting it makes sense. It would have been it would have been too over. It would have been a great way to distract from all of the subtext of the rest of the movie. <laughs> right. And would have, I, I think would have undermined the subtext of the movie. Under, yeah. yeah. Would have hurt. Absolutely. It. Yeah. Would have hurt it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's, it's interesting. The one thing I have to say about it, like I do really, I really did enjoy this movie quite a bit. I'm a yeah. big fan. The only thing that I felt was a letdown. And this is a minor, this is, this is for me personally. This is a personal thing is I liked Oshima's cinematography in Mm -hmm. the other two movies we've seen from him better than this. Okay. I don't know. Like, both of those movies are so vivid and intense. Color is so... This feels so... This feels like an 80s production in color and lighting and stuff in a way that kind of flattens it for me. I think the, the... performances the story everything about the movie is really good and like the cinematography as far as like the way the scenes are staged is still very good i like a lot of staging i like the way every where the camera is in relationship to the to the actors i like the you know i like the camera's movement or or lack thereof quite often um i i just i when i think now i i now have an image in my head for oshima and it's it's maybe Criterion's fault more than anybody else's from realm of the senses, especially of intensely yeah. vivid color and, and color dynamics right. where like he'll put like a red kimono, a bright red kimono on like a white a background of snow and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. He'll do stuff like that where the colors are really intense. Um, and you know, Empire Passion's a different kind of intensity, but it's still there. It's still like real, like when he, when, like, you know the ghost scenes are so the right. color so vivid, and like I feel like I feel like the film styling and techniques of the of the mid early to mid eighties like did him a disservice. All right, unfortunately, here we are also dealing with uh, a piece where all of the characters are in 
greens, grays, right, and right. Browns. Uh, but I feel like and, there's probably ways around. I mean, like, I think it's more that he was let down by the fact that like we're outdoors yeah. in in a tropical location, so the sun's always going to exist in a sing essentially a single dynamic, right? The sun's always going right. to look basically the same, uh, except for when it sets and rises. And yes, you're right. Like people are going to be in certain yeah. kinds of costumes. I mean, he plays with it a little bit, right? There's the scene with the flowers, and the flowers are really intense. Right. It's not like it doesn't exist in this. It's just not as much yeah. as the other movies do, that we've watched. I do think camera placement often is is where he shines here. Mm-hmm. Um, that is particularly true of indoor scenes. Yes, I I think uh, it, I think it is but, better in indoor scenes as a. In general, I like the indoor scenes visually better than the outdoor scenes, yeah. but that's just me. Obviously, obviously, it's you know, the the religious undertones of this film are something we need to dig into in a little bit. Yes, uh, but in talking about cinematography, uh, the scene where they uh, pretend to execute Cellier, uh, uh, um and he's strung up in this Christ pose, right? Yeah, uh, but then, but then particularly the shot from behind his head where we are staring through his arms and also looking down the barrel of the guns at his eye level. Right. Uh, is phenomenal. Just no. Brain. Yeah. And and I, for example, uh, I'm a big fan of the, of the, um, the funeral scene. I, I don't know yes. why, but the staging of the funeral scene is like, so also very good. Just, it's yeah. really gorgeous to look at. I, I just, yeah. I don't know. It's something about the, I, it's something about the way that like, Film from this era captures colors makes yeah. me unhappy in general. <laughs> it's not really, I don't think, Oshima's fault, except for maybe he should have just gone and hunted down some older film stock or something. I don't know. Like, it's just a weird thing about the way the colors look. It just reminds me of like TV movies. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's something we'll talk about next week too, but it also just, it feels very much to me in line with the color palette of. World War Two war movies from the eighties and nineties. I agree. I agree. Uh, and, and movies that I love, I love as well, have this similar sort of. I don't. It's very specific. I don't know. Yeah. Like I, everybody knows that I'm sure when they see it. But but one thing, one benefit that brings to us is that the brightest things we get on screen are all Bowie and Bowie related. <laughs> That's true. They're That's his, true. They're his hair, his eyes, those red flowers he brings. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, his his head in the sand. Yes. Um, yeah. His, uh, yeah. Um, and the whiteness of the sand too, in contrast to what we're seeing there, is is another thing. Um, particularly, you know, in the drab green and the tents and the the browns of the men in the background. Um, uh, yeah. So you know it centers, it centers the charisma of Cellier, um, in in a very visual way. I think. Right. Yeah. To, I, I I agree uh, with that. It's just that, like even then, because Bowie's character is bound by the sort of costuming of this kind of movie and stuff. Yeah. It, there's still a limit to how much it can do. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So I do want to talk about this, the religion of this movie. Okay, sure. Um, Let's talk religion. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of interesting aspects. One, if we if we do interpret De Young as a rape, okay, 
I think it is interesting that a prominently Catholic, given the crucifix we we have very prominently on his neck that he keeps rubbing, a very prominently Catholic Dutchman uh, being raped uh, by a Japanese soldier uh, is a historical turning on the head that I do find interesting to think about. Right. Uh, given given the Dutch Catholic uh, influence within uh, within Japan, the Dutch being the the Dutch being the first ones into Japan, particularly because or the most not the first the ones, ones in. The Portuguese were the first ones in, yes. but like the Portuguese specifically being ones... kicked out because they were too damn Catholic. Right, right, and then the Dutch coming in because they offered the guns without the religion yes. <laughs> attached. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, the the men, uh, the principal group of men we see are barracked in a church, which is also where... Well, they're not... They're barracked in, like, the greenhouse outside. Right, right. The church but, is being used as a dojo right. for our... Um, yes. For Yonoi to practice kendo, but with real yes. blades, which is a... I, right, right. I don't. I don't personally. I try. I generally, in my personal life, try to avoid <laughs> learning too much about World War II. I find it's yeah. better for my mental health. But yeah. I, I, I mean, yes. I don't know if this was a thing that happened, but it fits in line with him being a radical. Like he's radical yes. by Japanese military standards. Right, right. It's worth noting because we make he makes direct reference to missing the February twenty sixth incident. Yeah, and like failing his comrades, feeling a similar sense that Bowie feels towards his brother. Uh, it's like a point of sort of comparison yeah. between the two of them, right? That like he failed his comrades by being having already left for Manchuria when they when the t- February twenty sixth incident occurs, right. which makes him a a radical by Japanese military standards, right? right. Uh, which is worth noting, right? Because we see like you know. And I think that plays where we, they play with that throughout the. I mean, Oshima specifically is playing with that, right. probably to a certain extent without, without necessarily the knowledge of the the writer, probably, but playing with like this guy's a hardliner, a hardliner's right. hardliner. You know what I mean? Right. Like he's he's yeah. the next guy comes in and says, "I won't be as lax as a person who probably was way way more intense than him." This is. This is a this is a guy who is in charge of this prisoner of war camp on Java, as a way to sort of push him out of the yeah, way. Yeah, to keep him from from right. causing trouble. Right. Uh, yeah. He wasn't there for the incident, you know. And like overall, like you know, there weren't that many people convicted for it. Like yeah, and right. like only despite the fact that it was probably much larger than that. But like that faction was de right decentered, uh, but like they had to put those people somewhere. <laughs> Uh, in in any case, the men are being housed in a way yes, yes. where the, there's a where it is very it. very within certainly within their hearing because they complain about it, uh, but also within their knowledge generally that this church has been converted into the dojo for right is is now become a sort of temple to Bushido or something <laughs> yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. I mean, generally the the Japanese religion in this is. A base Shintoism more than Buddhism. Right? Well, uh, will be it's, like I mean, yeah. s- like 
bear in mind that by the time you get to the major rest, once you get to the major restoration, essentially Buddhism is 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 mostly shoved aside as far as state religions go. Right. Uh, right. You know, and obviously we, we there's a lot more subtlety to it than that. But but the point yeah. being that like, uh, and Bushido like this this idea this like Japanese military circa like the sort of imp- you know sort of the imperial time like idea of Bushido is this weird. Yeah, mind fuck that doesn't make any sense and all right. this stuff that's sort of tied in with Shinto but it's sort of not but like that has become in many effects that has become the state religion of Japan even despite it not being a religion per se but this sort of ultimate loyalty to the emperor and to the empire right. becoming right. a sort of de facto religion uh, and that's Absolutely. what the, that's what the church is now right the whole place right. has been cleared out there's none of the artifacts of the actual religion there it's just a big empty room for him to like whack people with with swords. Right. Right. In the name of the emperor. And obviously, and obviously then in the uh in the funeral scene we get Lawrence destroying uh the Shinto shrine. Yeah, uh, there well and, and, yeah, I mean yes, but not yeah, well, we don't need to get into that. But like in that in that particular regard that would be a that would be a Buddhist ceremony because that's how oh, okay. death works here. Yes. But like um well, yes. And we even see we've talked, we see, we've talked about that prior. We see Beat Takeshi wearing you know prayer beads in the final right. scene. He's right. clearly to a certain extent found religion, or maybe yes. had it all along in a different way than his commanding officer had yeah. it. Well, when he's when he's lying down, when Lawrence approaches him with Day Young, it seems to be in a meditative. Yes, one gets the impression stance. that he is a more spiritual man. Yes. That and one has to wonder if if Hara and Yonoi are there are both people who have been pushed aside but for very different reasons. Yeah. In the sense that like Yonoi is a dangerous radical and Hara may be a nonconformist with regard to like state religion to a certain extent. Maybe a person who maybe. takes Buddhism more seriously than maybe the rest of his compatriots do as an actual religion bear in mind there are plenty of pro-war buddhist organizations it's, right, i'm not right, trying to right, imply right. that he's inherently a pacifist or something like that obviously yeah. but my point being that like that would make him a weirdo yeah and and you know yeah. you know what happens to weirdos when <laughs> you know what i mean like this they think, get shoved off to the side right yeah i think one of the one of the subtler, subtler things that's really interesting to me that happens religiously in this movie um and i can't i don't know I feel like it's too nuanced to be put on Ashima. It might be something the screenwriter introduced. It might be something Conti introduced, but I do think it's an active decision. Is that uh, Sellers gets back with the flowers, uh-huh. says we should have a funeral service, uh, tells, uh, tells Lawrence that he should say a few words, and Lawrence starts into the Lord's Prayer, yes. our Father. Uh as he gets to the line, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, he pauses, and it's a very pregnant pause yes, before I he starts agree that, that line, yeah. right? Uh, and then he is immediately interrupted as soon as he says that. Right. The, that action moves the ra- on. The raid happens right as he's yeah. saying those who trespass against us. This is a guy who is in war, but generally taking... A pacifistic approach <laughs> within within what he is doing now, right? right? Um, he is someone who has deep respect for the Japanese culture, 
as a Westerner. And this is true of the the guy who wrote the book of of, right. of Sir, Sir Lawrence, who says this is based off of, uh, or at least what he says, uh, which is his own thing. Because according to Wikipedia, after he died, a lot of people said, "Yeah, he made up most of his life story." I mean, it, <laughs> but, uh, it, it, yeah, but, we we we, yeah. we you and I have talked about this off off, <laughs> yeah. off mic. There's a like, lot of. Especially with this movie being divorced from the book fairly heavily, it kind of gets confusing. But, like, you know, you watch this, the surreal nature of this makes it sort of like, well, this isn't a true story. Like, this just isn't. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, But but it seems like, you know, that sort of plants a seed that that grows into that final scene. Uh, Because that final scene really is, in many ways, about grace and forgiveness and... uh, and what we have the power to do within the within the uh, system that we find ourselves in, right? right? And, and and when you think about like the fact that like you know this is that part combined with like sort of Lawrence's relationship with Hara is the closest thing you'll get to the descriptions provided by Amazon or somebody like that about what this <laughs> right, movie is right. about, where yeah. there is a sort of like these two people are about the closest of any two people in this movie of actually coming to understand each other, like on a sort of deeper level, right? Like uh, in that sort of cross cultural divide sort of sense, right? Like Lawrence has an understanding and a respect and kind of has an idea that if we just like go with it and follow, try to just do what they want us to do, it'll all like work out kind of idea. Right. Like if we, you know, the, like him kind of being a little bit under more understanding and he's working with a person who is a, is a, is a, you know, could be understood to be radical on, on the English side too. Right. Like this guy who's right. not willing to give an inch kind of for anything. Right. Um, right. Uh, so he's kind of in between two radicals and how does sort of the opposing figure in that same sort of like situation, right? Like they're, they're trying to mediate a thing that's un- sort of unmediatable, right? Right. right uh, and then, right. you know, Lawrence comes to visit him at the end, and it, and they kind of discuss the idea that, like, the only real functional difference between you and me is that my side won and yours lost, right? Like, there's no... Right. On the flip yeah. side, it would be exactly the opposite outcome, right? Like, right. It, there's no real difference here kind of thing. We are, we are... We are all victims of men who believe they are right. Exactly, is, which is, is a, exactly which is good line, right? It's a good line. Yeah, yeah. Um, which you know is is the mirror to Renoir's. Everyone has their reasons, right? But, right. Uh, but and and I think either the screenwriter or the producer points this out in one of the uh, one of the bonus features, but smart commentary. Um, Renoir used that line as an excuse. Oshima is not interested in excuses. He is interested in reasons. Right. Absolutely. But but there is a difference between reason and excuse. Right. That that Oshima is making a distinction uh, that Renoir does not necessarily make. So we get you know we get uh, Lawrence saying we were all we were all wrong, uh, and we get uh, we get Hara's confusion that he is the one punished. <laughs> when everyone did the things they right, did. Right, right. Right. Uh, and he has to lose his life for it. Uh, which, of course, also mirrors uh, Yanoi sentencing Lawrence and, and Selliers to death for a thing they didn't actually do. Right. right. Uh, Hara 
did the things he's accused of doing, but they were a normal course of action, right? And the and, right, and yeah. he is being singled out in in a similar way. Uh you know, he's he's responsible for his own personal action, of course, but also he is just a cog in a in a Right, and, it, and it's very important to understand that Oshima is not interested in talking about like only following orders, right? It's right. as you talked about. It is just like, well, of course that's what we do. That's like right, what you right. do, right? Like we just did and, the thing we you do, right? Yeah, and it's not it's not explicitly stated here, but but something that Oshima knows certainly uh, in eighty three, and that we can all know today is that the guys who gave those orders in Japan weren't punished no exactly i mean like right there, there were a whole lot of scapegoats who got punished to ensure that like allied you know the allied forces got to keep the people they actually wanted to keep around to make sure right. that like yeah you gotta work man gotta, gotta keep those commies out and the easiest way to do that is right. just to put a whole bunch of fucking fascists in charge <laughs> right right yeah um another interesting change from the from the original script as it came to uh, our British screenwriter, is that Oshima's version, the entire tale is told in flashback. Okay. The opening scene of Oshima's script uh, is Lawrence visiting Yanoi's grave uh, in winter. Uh. And Marysburg pushed back on that as the first thing he said was that what you're making here is a prisoner of war movie. And if we, uh, the tension of a prison, of a prison camp movie is who's going to live and who's going to die. So if we start off the script with who's already dead, you undermine all that tension is how he argued it. I I get the argument. I, (laughs) yeah. I generally disagree with the premise. Yeah. I understand where the argument comes from. I kind of wonder if maybe the I wonder if some of the reasons why this movie doesn't, for example, have a higher Rotten Tomato score or something to that effect, is as to use that as a bullshit metric, is yeah. that like to a certain extent some of that stuff watered down would have been what would have been a more Oshima thing than Perhaps. it already is. Yeah. Because I don't think Oshima was interested in making a prisoner of war movie. No, if I'm being no, totally really. honest, like Oshima wasn't um, interested in making you know Bridge on the River Kwai or something like that. Oshima was right. interested in making Oshima shit, which is right, like right. not that. Yeah, and this isn't even really Oshima's Bridge over the River Kwai. No, so, like, no. Uh, yeah. Well, well, Oshima was persuaded by that obviously because mm-hmm. we see it in the final version but but was persuaded by that argument initially uh and then took uh took took Myersburg out for dinner Myersburg tells the story took him out for dinner uh after they agreed to make that change and like all of the rest of the production crew uh called Myersburg an evil spirit that was <laughs> essentially treated him <laughs> like like sellers gets treated in the film uh for a little bit uh, as someone who uh, changed changed Oshima's mind for what they believed the worst in that moment, um, you know, they seem to have 
everyone seems to have come on board with the with the decisions as they were made. But, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, I, see, the thing is, is like now I'm like I'm kind of caught on it because like I you yeah. know, I didn't watch the bonus features and stuff like that, but like I can picture that scene in my mind, and it's so deeply, intensely Oshima in style that yeah. I don't want to mentally like. I think I'm yeah, sure the can. whole crew could imagine it too. And yeah. like it's like, uh, do you want us? Uh, we're letting that can, go. Like we're not going to start with can, that because that's going to be intense as shit. You can picture how Oshima would 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 sell that and and shoot that and yeah, and maybe we get a little bit of that as we do with, with Lawrence his, at the end as he approaches the the prison where Hara is being held. Particularly, we get a little bit of that. Um, yeah, and even in uh, the cell with Hara. I mean, but like. I I understand where you know Marysburg is like his his argument is coming from. I think he was wrong. I just think yeah. he was wrong. <laughs> and it's okay because they made a very all in all a successful film that is that is very right. good. But nonetheless. Yeah. I think the opening to this film actually works very well. I, I think the I think the sudden start is good. Yeah. Where the way yeah. it just like really catches you off guard is quite good, right? The yeah. movie just fucking starts. You're so, like, what the hell is going actually, on? Actually, speaking of catching you off guard, um I assume the version you watched subtitled the Japanese. Yes, I mean yes, yes it did. Yeah. The Criterion version subtitles the Japanese. Right. There is an English print of this. That was famous enough that there is argument about it. That does not subtitle the Japanese, which is understandable. Uh, yeah. I had a lot a mental sort of thought process about that while I was watching it. Yeah, Where, partially because my subtitles kicked out in the middle for some reason, and I had to like I restart them. Yeah. And I, I tried watching for a while without them. I'm like, yeah, but I kind of want to make sure I'm I'm right about everything because I get that way. Yeah. So so obviously it, it comes to me with subtitled Japanese. It's how I've experienced the film. So you know, the first the first way I experience it will be will be the way to which all other experiences are right. compared. And I can't go back now. Uh, you know, I I will uh, I will remember enough about what the Japanese said. Right. That, yes, that yeah. I won't have I won't have the true experience of not of seeing it untranslated. Right. Uh, but you know, in watching it, thinking about you know just. The way it's emotively portrayed, you know, the really important stuff that that we absolutely need to know is translated for the characters on screen, right? Or said in English, and we get more speaking in English as the film goes on, right? Um, which is another indication that Yunoi is maybe uh, maybe succumbing to some things around right. <laughs> around Sellers is that he's speaking in English more and more often. Um, but it would have been very interesting to see this from the point of view of the non-English or the non-Japanese speakers within the film, right? Which um, is a which is not a which is not a, a, a conveyance uh, that I can experience right. could experience anyway, right? Like I right, right. when the subtitles kicked out, I kind of didn't notice for a while, and then was like, oh wait, like <laughs> yeah, we're not reading yeah. this anymore, and I didn't understand what somebody just said, so I should like go figure out why they're broken, yeah, but like. Mainly, honestly, it, it come down to like it, Lawrence, the character played by Lawrence, is Japanese is a little hard to understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, he Conti <laughs> uh, Conti did not actually speak Japanese. Yeah, you, you and can while tell. Yeah. while he was taught those 
essentially taught the lines phonetically. Yes, he did yeah. understand what what he was saying. And he did a good job. Don't get me wrong. He he very much sounds he, probably the way I sound when I speak Japanese. Frankly, yeah. like a, yeah. a person who's not a native speaker, but like it makes it a little hard to understand sometimes. I'm like I don't know what he's he, trying to say. He says that he was taught that Japanese by a Jewish New Yorker, <laughs> uh, but he just on the beach, like in in Rorotonga, like on set. Uh, um, he, I don't know if he names who, so I don't know who. It's, it was that's interesting. That's, a, that's an odd uh, situation, but okay. Just because, uh, like, more than one member does, of that of the of the <laughs> filmmaking staff definitely spoke English. So, yeah, in, including but not limited um, to Oshima, who speaks who is well, not a, who has a decent English ability. Yeah, but apparently did not. Uh, in eighty, like in it's the believable. 80s, I mean, like, they, yeah. I don't know when he became like. By the more time fluid. he. Yeah. passed away he was a very good english like speaker yeah. as far as i understand it uh, in any case uh he does conti does say he learned those lines and then he ran them by ja- native japanese yeah. speakers to to try to make sure he had the inflection and pronunciation more proper um again i i don't speak japanese you do well i mean he's, he's he he's, does a he's good not. job don't don't get me wrong yeah. he's as a, he's about as him and the Japanese actors speaking English are on about the same footing. Yeah, in, ter- in, my, okay. in my to my ear, in terms of just that like, makes sense. They're, they're everybody's struggling to speak their non-native language, which which works great. Like if, as far as the aesthetics of the film are concerned, works pretty yeah. well. Yeah, I think I think given that so often there there are obviously times where we are our point of view character particularly with with sellers when when he's not around lawrence uh doesn't understand japanese right but lawrence does understand japanese so when lawrence is our point of view character it makes sense to have japanese to have the, the translations there yeah. 100% yeah. you would be doing your audience a sort of disservice because now you have right. a person who who should understand what's going on I do balance that though against the third man, where to me, in my initial watchings of the third man, uh, the fact that Holly doesn't understand any language besides English, and none of that stuff is translated within the copies of the film I had well, I watched mm-hmm. initially, made sense, and his confusion makes sense, but. But that confusion is part of the theme of the movie, too. Right. right. And and it's really important uh, about how much you want to engross your audience in the yeah. experiences of the character or not. Right. I don't think this movie was necessarily super interested in doing that part of it. Right, right. And I think that's a, that's a strong argument there. I also remember, given my first exposure to The Third Man was without that translated, when I watched the 4K uh, version that Netflix put up a few years ago, and they did translate all of that, all of the foreign language, particularly in the scene where Holly approaches the apartment where the man's been murdered, mm-hmm. and everyone's talking about uh, how he did it. <laughs> right, Basically, yeah. the little boy accuses him. All of that being subtitled, so I knew everything everyone in that scene said was incredibly off-putting. Well, uh, so but here's the thing, right? So like now, I I agree in in every direction with everybody all the time. Um, <laughs> On the flip side, what I will say is then what you're doing is is you you it comes down to whether or not you want to immerse the audience in that experience or you want your actors to sell that experience. Right, right. And like in this movie, for example, 
we understand that a majority of the camp captives, the prisoners do not understand Japanese. Right. And therefore are completely have no understanding of the the motivations or actions of their captors. They right. cannot understand and, and that and that divide is very important to the film, right? Right. Our, the, the the captives have no concept of what the captors want or like think or anything. Despite the fact that the captors are talking about it right in front of them. Right? Absolutely. The, and the Japanese are, are very clearly discussing what they are they are doing and what they want and are yelling about it and trying to make demands and that's not understood. Now, like selling that by not letting the audience hear like understand it is a way to do it. But also then you don't get the sort of I don't want to call it ironic, but like the the you don't get the advantage of now your audience also understands what they want. Right. But now has to read the emotions of the of the actors who are playing the prisoners who don't understand yeah. and we get to see their confusion and and it because if you take out the Japanese translation I will say I don't think I would like it because yeah. I you you make it so your audience also just does not understand those characters they yeah. become completely alien to the audience as uh, well which kind of sucks right like it's good to know why they're doing what they're doing obviously the emotive acting uh, sells the anger and frustration right. of of not being understood and of of uh, not being respected uh, in the way they demand to be respected from the guards. Uh, so that does work. Um, Yenoi, of course, is doing a sort of Michael Caine and Zulu thing where he doesn't really react to anything anyway. He's just right. stoic right. Um, the entire time. Um, uh so you know you don't you don't necessarily but he's the one who speaks English the most out of right. out of any any of the Japanese characters right um, Hara very close second obviously but uh, so yeah I think in thinking about what would be lost and I was sort of thinking about this as I watched it right. because I was in mind to think of 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 that language barrier too. Because it's a, it's a thing that the movie puts in front of us, right? Because right. Lawrence Absolutely. has the position Lawrence has. Because the movie because he is talking Japanese, about right? that. Whether or not yeah. you get the subtitles or not, that is what the, one of the things the movie is talking about, is the right. divide between these two groups of people. Yeah. yeah. And and in as much as this movie is a Ren, Renoir-esque Brotherhood of Man, is a movie about how culturally these two militaries are not as different as they pretend they are. Right, Absolutely. Even as they have different religions, even as they have... Uh, you know, different languages. They're they're all the same people here. And I mean, right. and then we get to the conclusion. I mean, like literally, the movie draws that conclusion in the final scene, right? Like that's right, like right. it comes to that yeah. conclusion at the end. Yeah. So, so watching it with with all of those things in mind, I think the only thing that's really super lost is that in the initial scene, we would be completely confused about what's actually going on, right? With with the young and the other guy about why either of these people were in trouble. Um, and then we would only get the framing of that from what DeYoung says, which isn't bad. I think we'd, we'd, we'd come to similar conclusions that you and I have come to about the nature of that, uh, only hearing from DeYoung and, right. and other English speakers' speculation about it. Um, so, so I don't think that's bad. 
Um, I would so say just... that you lose a pretty intense amount about the relationship between um, between uh, Hara and Yonoi. You're going to lose um, a lot of yes. their relationship. Yes. You're never going to... Fo- Despite them both doing good acting jobs, you're going to get a feel, but like... With the translation, you get a, like a understanding of the relationship. You understand how Harda feels about it, how Yanoi feels about it, like the way they interact with yeah. each other, uh, their feelings. You know how Harda sees the way that Yanoi is reacting to uh, yeah Sellers' character. You're gonna lose a lot of you're gonna lose a lot of subtlety that I think is really yeah played very think- well, and to sort of just to a certain extent end up kind of chucking that in the garbage seems like a like a, yeah. a pretty big loss, and I, it it probably seems silly uh, to get hung up on a lot, but I think there's some subtly subtlety that you would lose between what what Hara says about himself being Father Christmas in that scene where he's drunk and releases right. them, and what what uh, Lawrence translates him as saying. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think I think there's enough subtle difference there that I'm I'm glad to have had the translation yeah. there very much. Um, and there, and there's yeah. I think there's little I mean I'm trying to remember now going back but there's little subtle things like that kind of throughout the movie where like yeah. Yeah. Lawrence sort of tweaks the translations just ever so slightly to like yeah. make them easier there, on his comrades yeah. and stuff to a certain extent. Yeah, and there are other points where yeah, and and yeah, Lawrence tweaking translations is interesting yes right? there's a reason he's editorializing when he editorializes and we need to know that he's editorializing right Right. i think it's useful um, to understand that like yeah. it's part of his mediation process right yeah. like he's other trying to stop this from becoming a thing where right you know right it's out and out conflict between the two parties right yeah yeah there are other instances where we would we would be confused for a little bit but not not necessarily off-puttingly like uh like when the when the batman comes to kill uh Sellier. And, and a lot of that gets in up gets in explained in a Lawrence translation anyway. Right, right. Or in, or uh, retrospectively. Right, right, exactly. It maybe not fully and like it gets editorialized a little bit, so you wouldn't get the whole gist of it necessarily, but you'd understand enough. I'm just saying that like if you watch that version, you would probably I think come away with a slightly incomplete understanding of the film. I think that's fair. And yeah. it's something like, you know, yeah, I yeah, I think so. And I and I think other movies that we've talked about with this in mind are built to work that way, whereas this wasn't right. probably third built man, for this. The, the third, third man, man is, is built definitely for that. worked to build that. Yeah. Whereas this is not necessarily built for that. You could get well, a, it would probably be an interesting viewing experience, but I don't think it's actually built for it. Right. It's it's 100% true that the third man is built for an English speaking audience. Right. And this movie is built for in English speaking and a Japanese speaking. Right. Audience. And bear in mind, yes, absolutely. And bear in mind the Japanese version is probably not gonna skip out on the on the English subtitles. Certainly for the English not. Speak, or for right? the Japanese <laughs> subtitles and the English speakers. Right. right. Yeah. You'd be completely lost. Uh yeah. Interesting on a direction and in this film. I already mentioned that the uh the British actors all all say that essentially Oshima would give would give direction 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 to the Japanese actors, and then turn to them and say, "Do it how you would normally do it, basically." Right. Uh, for every scene. Um. 
However, uh, both uh, well Sakamoto and and Katano particularly, uh, Sakamoto is the one who gets interviewed about it, uh, and I feel like Bowie might have said something about it in the 1983 featurette too. I, I definitely read um, Bowie uh, a quote from Bowie yeah. talking about that. Yeah, somewhere. Um, could, uh, Sakamoto particularly says Oshima seemed reluctant to criticize any of the three of them, Katano, Sakamoto, or Bowie. Uh, and he felt because he knew that they weren't actors by trade. Right. Uh, and he laid that, perhaps slightly jokingly, uh, at uh, at the idea that if he if he yelled at them too much, they'd just quit and go back to their day jobs and not, <laughs> right, not lose right, anything. Right. Yeah, it's right? kind of understandable, right? Yeah, yeah. They didn't need this, so um, so they could just leave. Uh, Sakamoto talks about times, uh, I think particularly in that funeral scene, uh, where he kept goofing up, um, and Oshima yelled at a background actor for messing up the scene. Uh, even though it definitely wasn't him messing up the scene, it was right. it was Sakamoto. Which, which brings in a, a, a funny little like uh, a sort of almost like meta reference to the idea of like, well, somebody's going to be punished for this. God damn it! Right, right, right. Uh, do yeah. I care who it is? Not particularly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting in that with with the screenwriter being accused of being an evil spirit influencing Oshima and and uh, uh, Sakamoto talking about someone else getting yelled at for what was clearly his mistake. Um, it's interesting how sort of <laughs> how a lot of meta stuff. There's a lot of meta going on here. Is reflected in the in the text. Uh, not you know with the screenwriter it could be like purposeful though I don't think the screenwriter. Uh, purposefully set out to, <laughs> no, no, to do that I don't sort think of so. thing. Maybe they had slightly different um, visions for what the movie yeah. would be. But well there there were, and that's something interesting that that he does talk about in his featurette, uh, is that the script he got from Oshima had a lot of silence. And there is still a good chunk of silence yeah. in this movie. But that had a lot of silence because it was written uh or adapted into uh, what he described as a Japanese uh, mentality of uh, you know, Japanese conversation uh, is willing to have that silence. There were scenes where a character would ask four or five questions and then it would end with the other person answering the first question. Right. Uh, and, uh, but that was true. You know, I think that that sort of continues to be true for the Japanese folks in this film right uh where uh whereas it's not true in myersburg's version right and, and what we see for the english speakers and you know, i have to say rebalanced. you know i guess that does feed into kind of maybe some of the other stuff we were talking about you know this doesn't feel this has a different feel in many ways from Oshima's other work, and, and yeah. maybe to a certain extent, it feels much more Western than than a lot of right. Oshima's other work. Uh, feels more geared to making Western audiences comfortable and things like that. To a certain extent, I I, I can kind of see as a as an argument somebody could make. Um, mm. And like I about them, him not giving directing direction to them. Definitely, I'm sure that like 
them being people who could return to their day job at any moment is is probably part of it. Uh, and also, like, you know, it's probably a certain, to a certain extent, sort of a kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it, like, code switching, but, like, a, like, well, like, that's the way, my understanding is that's the, you know, this is just from, like, us doing this for so long, but that's kind of, I think, what a lot of people on a Japanese film set expect from their director is, like, yeah. a pretty demanding hard ass, you know what I mean? Who's yeah. going to, like, give them, you know, give them hell the whole time. And none of the people who said they didn't get direction were familiar with that experience or that environment. So, like, just the idea that, like, oh, well, doing this to them will have no benefit or ultimate result that is beneficial because, like, they don't understand this environment. I'm not going to, you know, some of them I'm not even, apparently if, if Oshima's not very good at English at this time in his career, he's not going to really be able to yell at, you know, you know the two English, right, you know, right. any of the English-speaking cast very well anyway, and have it be effective. And Sakamoto is an outsider from this industry anyway, and so right. he probably wouldn't feel comfortable like treating him like an insider, right? Like there's right. a certain sort of idea of like, well, this is these people are inside my bubble, these people are outside my bubble, right? Yeah, yeah. we and we you know with the French New Wave and stuff, we see people, um, you know, going out of their way to do that, right? To constantly bring in outsiders, but like yeah. Oshima is a is a figurehead in the Japanese new wave, and that doesn't seem to be an element of the Japanese new wave per se. The idea that we should like make this a bring in the outsiders into the inside, right, or you know involve them necessarily, yeah. like that just doesn't seem to be a hallmark of the of the Japanese new wave uh, in any you know you know what I mean, like making it and the and the French new wave very different animals in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, like there doesn't yeah. seem to be a desire to like, uh, we got to bring in outsiders to freshen this up. It's like, no, we just need to maybe not make the most boring studio films ever uh, for a little, <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Conte has one more story about, about direction from Oshima, which is the, the opening of the on location, uh, it's it's like a it's a cold open to the on location featurette because he tells this story and then we get the title drop of the of the featurette. Uh, it's just it's it's a weird bit of editing for what is essentially a series of talker talking head interviews to do that. But uh, but anyway, uh, he talks about how uh, on a normal film set you have action, you do the thing, you call cut. Uh, and he said that after every cut, Oshima would yell, ha, ha, yai, uh, <laughs> which I don't know. I don't know why he did not expound on why. Just told it was a funny thing that happened that was sort of off-putting to him. <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, the uh, the producer gets a lot into the differences between uh, Japanese filmmaking and British filmmaking. Uh, particularly around, you know, they'd spend a lot of money on a location, on building sets, and then Oshima would show up and they'd film exactly what he wanted and no more. Right, right. Uh, not shoot any coverage, not not, not reshoot uh, the scene from a different angle, not even do multiple takes uh, right. unless someone goofed up. 
Well, and they weren't uh, even apparently getting like dailies or anything like that. There's no, like, no. I, I love the idea that like he was like he'd shoot it, chuck it in a brown env- uh, in yeah. an envelope, and it would get shipped off back yeah. to Japan like immediately that night or whatever. Yeah, that's uh, the Wikipedia mentions that, but that's actually something Bowie talks about in the nineteen the nineteen eighty three feature. At uh, is yeah, they did it. the island did not have the facilities to do dailies, so uh, which also meant that by the time. Oshima got back to Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His his editor had a working. Yeah, it was basically almost done, right? Like yeah. they said that like it was basically done within four days of him getting home or whatever. Is a yeah, crazy yeah. thing to like. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure yeah. he made he made modifications to it and stuff like that. But like, just the idea that he didn't get to see what he was shooting throughout the entire production, very notably confident in what he's making. And shows up to essentially a working version of the film when he gets home is a is a wild image to have in your head, especially you consider it doesn't match with the way film was shot and made at the time, right? And it, and it definitely doesn't match with the way film is shot and made now. Like it even more yeah. so doesn't match now, right? With with digital allowing people to just check things like yeah. fucking instantly, right? It's a really wild idea that this person was essentially you know Ocean was essentially just. Like flying on confidence and like skill exclusively. Like I, we got this. We're just gonna do it. Yeah, it's interesting because that's another thing that, uh, you know, the Japanese film industry was obviously churning things out pretty, pretty quickly yes. pre-war. Yeah, as well. But those post-war material conditions is what really cements the one take is all we need right, style, yes, yeah. right? Uh, and then Osh- Oshima grows up, you know, apprentices right. under people who, who did that sort of thing. Uh, and and it becomes bog standard for Japanese film. That's true, but like, even I mean, Even when like, it doesn't need to be anymore. Right, but it does become bog standard. Like, it is definitely a cost-cutting measure, but like, even this is a level up from, hey, right, we only right. do one, one take. Yeah. To build to be like, oh yeah, but we're also gonna not know if like if like the film got overexposed or some shit. We're just right, gonna like right. assume it didn't. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh we know what we're doing, it's fine. Like, you know. and like Yeah. Think about Redbeard, you know, uh Kurosawa had that huge set built, that right. that whole town. And here we have the entire camp built. But at least in Redbeard we like see a lot of that town, <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, it, it sort of plays to the idea, like, um, what was it? Uh, I read a thing. Oh, this is such a a, a non sequitur to what we're talking about, but like the idea, somebody, somebody on Twitter, or somebody was talking about the idea of like, well, why were buildings so ornate in the past versus now? And it changed. It has to do with material conditions and the idea that like well, labor was cheap and materials were expensive, mm-hmm. and like now labor is expensive and materials are cheap so you get a, a flip-flop in the way buildings are built right well this era of, of japanese filmmaking i think labor is very very cheap yeah so like yeah make a whole town who the fuck cares yeah go for it like yeah ah, don't take two takes of that fucking shot film's right. expensive and almost, <laughs> and almost certainly true when you're what you're building is temporary by design Right uh, was that yeah with, would would have been a thing that was story. temporary at right. the time even yeah yeah uh, on Rorotonga where I imagine labor is even cheaper than 
mainland Japan or even mainland New Zealand. Right, uh, right. Well, and who knows how much labor is being brought in, how much labor is being hired on, on site. Like, who knows, right? Right. Um, you know, because we don't get any of those kind of, like, real nitty-gritty financial details for this. Right, I mean, even right. bringing in the labor would have been probably pretty cheap, even if you're bringing yeah. in all Japanese laborers to do this. Like, I mean, 1983 is a more is a much more expensive time than, like, you know, what Oshima would have grown up in. But, like, my impression has always been that... Film labor is cheap in Japan. Like that's always been a sort yeah. of impression that I've gotten. Yeah, um, and what uh, what Jeremy Thomas, the producer, brings up uh, in that in that segment on on the location shooting is basically that they picked Rotonga because there was uh, a U.S. Army built airstrip, so they could get big planes of supplies. Okay, uh, and. It looked like Java, and it could it could look like other places that they needed. Um, and then you know they shot in Auckland, uh, right? It puts you close to a place to. that you can you can fake yeah. as a as a British primary or a high school. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I mean, because a a uh, a private school in Auckland is a British. Primary. Well, right. that's right. You know, that's what I mean, thing. right? Right. But you don't yeah. have to fly the whole fucking crew to fucking England. You can fly them right. to, to Auckland instead, which is a probably a much less expensive proposition, right? Right. 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 Yeah. So it all, yeah, yeah. They did it. They did it fairly cheaply, but it's still realistically. So, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, mean, they didn't know. need to build the whole. Obviously, they didn't need to build the whole <laughs> camp. But like again, like <laughs> right. I, I get down to the idea that like, I was. When we get to the scene of uh, of Bowie buried in the sand, and we pan across everyone singing in that whole camp sequence, like like it's the first time we see the whole camp really yeah. in the last ten minutes of the movie, and I'm like, where has this been? Like I right. up, like, well, that, like geographically, how is it even related? In, interestingly <laughs> um, enough, to a certain extent, one of the games that Oshima plays is he keeps us the audience pretty in the dark about geography yes like, it feels like a real place you're not you're it's not like one of those situations where he's built a thing that doesn't feel real but it feels like we're supposed to be geographically disoriented yeah they're like we're not ever supposed what? to be able to 100 percent get our feet on the ground as far as like how far the church is from yeah. the barracks but to the also- other things also in the dark about the exact size of the camp period right. uh both both geographically and population wise like uh you know other other prisoner of war movies that are really prisoner of war movies not whatever oshima thinks this is um very early on uh I think of well, Van almost Rijn's always. Express, I think of very early on there would be a parade where everybody be a parade. They'll probably out, use a, right? a, a, a a wide shot to sort of establish the size of the camp. Right, right, yeah. Because you know, also generally those movies are uh, centered around an escape attempt. So right. the geography of the situation is actually is very, very important, important right. to to the story. Um, yeah, here we never we never get that parade until fairly late in the movie. Uh. And we just well, I mean, like, oddly, I remember... interestingly enough, earlier in the movie, like not that much earlier, but before the parade, 
They make reference to the fact that like there are six hundred men in the camp, and you go, right? What? <laughs> what? We've we've there's met like two eight dozen, dudes. Maybe. I don't know what you're yeah. talking. About. Which which gives us this really really interesting perspective on like when we're in that one barracks where they're doing the 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 funeral. Like this is a very small subset of this population, right? Right. Which is yeah. not a thing at the time we really understand. Yeah. Like, uh, like when when we get Bowie buried in the sand, uh, there's some men marching, uh, and and then we get the pan across everybody singing, and that's the first time we've seen chaplains, and there's like right. four yes. or five chaplains. And I was just like, well, we had a funeral scene earlier. Why didn't we? (laughs) Well, and you get the impression that like, oh, well, like that that funeral was very specifically for this like very small set of the barracks that like lived with this person or whatever. Right. Yeah. And obviously, obviously, DeYoung's death at that moment had been not been generally announced. That's a plot point. Right. Right. So so there's no reason. And and it was an impromptu funeral uh, sequence. So there's no reason for the chaplains to be there. Right, and and, but, and and also that it's a funeral that is an act of defiance in and of itself, right? Like right, it is specifically right, right. meant to be an act of defiance. Yeah, I was just still very surprised yes, yeah. to see to see <laughs> Wait, there's four chaplains or five. here. Yeah, yeah. you're like, what? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, he's he shot a tight movie. Uh, and and I don't think, I'm not, I'm not confused by the sudden influx of people in space in that scene. No. I understand that it is broader and as you said they had they had allusions to it being broader prior. They mentioned there's 600 people or whatever in this camp. So but yeah. but it do, when they say that it does take you like when it's first in that, like made clear that that's true it yeah. does catch you but, off guard you're like I mean yes I guess I had to know that there were more than 20 people in this place. But it's yeah. very purposely like this is the story of this very small subset of this community right it's not a story about the whole camp it's a story about this small group within the camp and their and 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 in general their influence on the rest of the camp by their actions right like they do have an an effect on the rest of the camp through their actions yeah so so i understand jeremy thomas's stance of uh you know why uh why did I, I hire all these extras if you're going to use them for five minutes? Right, right, right. Uh, but I also understand, and and Thomas seems to have in the end as well, Oshima's stance of, do you want to pay to use them for an hour? Is that is that what right. you would rather <laughs> we're do? In, we're in uh, a very small <laughs> island off the coast of, <laughs> off of New Zealand. Like, I mean, to a certain extent, right? Like, you they got to all be there, right? Uh, kind right. of probably the whole time, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, and building the whole camp too, right? Like, well, you know, but like, I, my my suspicion about building the whole camp is that that Oshima has a style, but he probably didn't know exactly what he wanted to shoot down to the down to the nitty gritty until he saw the camp that was that resulted to a certain extent, right? Like, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're only going to tight tight little shots inside of it, but we get a pretty good amount of coverage. When you all add it up all together of all the places we go, we go a fair number of places. Yeah. When it's all said and done. Like we get a we are we're not like just hanging out it's not like we're only hanging out in the barracks. Like we, we go places. And a lot of times we go places that we've never seen before. It happens right. quite often, right? We're introduced to new places or places places we've been 
rendered completely differently, right? I'm thinking specifically of like when they're having the the sword battle versus when that becomes a a funeral is very like that that space transforms, right? And that space comes back to coming much closer to fulfilling its original purpose than it was right earlier right, in the right. scene and it is early in the movie. It is also religiously interesting that that does take place in that space, right? Yes, that yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I think we should probably pull this one to a close because we're getting a little long. Oh, are uh, we? I've yeah. lost track of time because this movie is fun to talk about. <laughs> it is very fun to talk about, and we could uh, we talk could about go on it for, for a much lot longer. longer. There's a lot yeah. more to say about this movie. Uh, next week, probably going to be a long episode as well because we were talking about another epic war movie. Uh, but this one's with... more about. This one's more of a war movie, right? This is more <laughs> right, of a war right, movie. Right. War movie, is, right? It's more. It's objectively a war movie uh still still i think an anti-war movie i don't know i haven't well as much as that could be true of of anything but yes i but yes think i've seen it i definitely seen part of it anyway as we mentioned earlier it is the thin red line directed by terrence malick i always enjoy seeing a malick film uh but it is (laughs) their malick films are generally very long and this one is three hours of war movie which is what i was afraid Today's would be, yeah. Today's would be, but it wasn't. Uh, One something I wanted to bring up. Sorry to totally interrupt you. One thing that was worth I wanted to talk about is the fact that Mayersburg also wrote the Man Who Fell to Earth. Yes, like yes, which is just interesting. It's just an interesting thing that like Bowie was also involved with him as well. I will say one of my first notes is that five minutes into this movie, I was fully fully on board with Bowie, and I'm convinced this is the best I've ever seen him act. Um, Yeah, no, I would, I think so. Yeah. Um, generally, people people put Man Who Fell to Earth above that, but I think Man Who Fell to I Earth. I like Man Who Fell to Earth a lot. I he's really meant to like be playing. Movie. He's meant to be playing someone who doesn't understand humanity, right? right? So he's a little aloof in it, in a in an interesting way. But I think here he's actually acting as a person in a in a real right. believable way, and it really works out. Right? Yes, I uh, agree. Yeah. This week we have been talking about Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, uh, from nineteen eighty three directed by Nagisa Oshima. And next week, it'll be The Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oyatari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Obertari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.